Welcome to the Be Disciples podcast with your host, Kyle Morris and Dakota Smith. This is episode 66 as we continue our study in the book of Acts. We will be continuing chapter two, the people or the Jewish people's response to Peter's sermon. How's it going today, Dakota? It's going well, man. Uh, but you have some exciting news coming up. It sounds like Kelsey's going to be induced tonight. And then you're going to have your son in your arms, hopefully by tonight or by sometime tomorrow tomorrow morning. Yeah. That's exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. We're excited to meet him, you know, whenever you're, you're building up for this, but this is our second one, right? So the nerve. It's not that big a deal. The nerves are less, (laughs) less than, than the first one. At least you have, you kind of know what to expect and, and kind of, it's kind of going the same way as, as, as our first one. Um, you know, our first, our son Conrad was, was actually born after his due date. It looks like this one will be born just the day before possibly the due date. Not bad. So kind of right around that due date we've been, we've been hitting. And so, uh, for those of you listening, uh, just be praying for us, uh, as we, uh, have a new baby in the house and just excited for the growth of our family and another one to train up in the Lord. And I pray for his salvation. Yeah, absolutely. Every single day that the Lord works on his tiny heart, just as my uh, of my other son. And so uh, that hopefully someday they can be men who love Jesus, who can go out and share the gospel. That That's what we want. We want the Lord to make great usage of their life. Yeah. Amen. So, hey, let me pray for you this morning, and then we're going to dive into the text. All right. Father, right now, I just ask you in Jesus' name. Um, for this newborn along the way. I thank you for Kyle's son. I thank you for his life. And God, we ask you that you would make much use of his life for your glory. I pray that you would bring provision and love and everything from the body of Christ to support them in this time. And God, I just ask you that at the end of the day, uh, that everything would be okay, everything would be safe. And Lord, you'd receive all the glory. Please be with us today as we encounter this text in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Acts 2. As you noted a moment ago, Peter has preached his first bold sermon after Pentecost. And now we're going to see the response of the people to his sermon. So let me just read 37 to 42. These are the only verses we're going to be working with in today's episode. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified, And kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that's our passage. We've got a lot of work to do in these couple of verses, a lot of contextual work, don't we? We do, because doctrine... (laughs) is challenged in these <laughs> yes. verses yeah. if we don't take the whole context of Scripture. Yeah. And so that's why we took a smaller chunk, and we just want to be able to walk through this and to look at other places in the Bible that are going to help us understand it. I think at first glance, it 
you can kind of just go over it. Oh yeah. Repentance, baptism, forgiveness of sins. Like, yeah, those are all things that Jesus uh, talked about, um, uh, or John the Baptist or whoever. So all those things are things we've heard in the gospels. Uh, but the order that it's written in, uh, will trick us up, but let's start at the beginning of, uh, here in verse 37, it said, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Yeah. What a response. They were cut to the heart. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly... Or even wounded in conscience, another way of translating it. Yeah. It's like, have you ever been convicted when listening to a sermon? Yeah. Yeah. And you could say here that Peter clearly was preaching the gospel. Yeah. And what does the gospel do? What what does God do on people's hearts when they hear the gospel? Well, there's something that says, well, wait a minute. Uh, Am I living the right way? Mm -hmm. Why am I... Why do I... Why... Why am I having conflict right here? Because Peter's pointing out sin. Yeah. And we have to remember his audience are Jews, right? And so they're, they they have this whole idea that they're God's chosen people. They're saved. They're good. They're, they're on the right path. They don't have to worry about much. They just need to follow the law and follow the Ten Commandments and continue to do their thing, and they're good. But there was something that cut at their heart when yeah. Peter preached the sermon. Yeah. There was something that changed in them. What what an amazing response by these people. Well, and I think that right there is what good gospel-centered preaching should produce in people. Right. Others are going to harden their heart, no doubt about it. Sure. But if your gospel presentation does not address sin and separation from God and ultimately hell, and I mean, I, you know, like you're leaving a massive part out of your gospel presentation, which points to the reason why people need Jesus. If if sin was not an issue, if sin was something to not be addressed, then why do I need Jesus to be my sin bearer on the cross? So healthy gospel preaching helps others to understand, wait a minute, I've been wounded in my heart, cut to the heart. I've been pierced in the heart. I have an issue. <clears throat> Even the community that I belong to has an issue. And they ask the the rightful question. The wrong question would have been um, something to the extent of, well, what, do you think that you're any better than us or something to that extent, right? But that's not the type of question that they ask in a defensive way. They ask a, a good question. Well, look at the last words Peter said in verse 36. This Jesus yeah. whom you crucified. Yeah, the end of his sermon. Yeah, the end of his sermon. I mean, he... Puts it out there. Yeah. This is the G- the Jesus I'm talking about. Yes. The son of man that I'm talking about is the one that you put on the cross. Right. And so that's a strong conviction, right? Yes. Like you're accusing us of putting Jesus on the cross, which you could say all sin yep. put Jesus on and, the cross, right? But the Jewish people here in this moment, it hasn't been too much longer after Jesus' ascension and his death on the cross. So I mean, this is this is fresh. It is. This is fresh news. This is immediately, you know, Peter drops the mic, and now they're asking the question, what shall we do? If you even back up in the start of verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. What do we know about the word Christ? It means Messiah. So for a Jewish audience who's hearing this, they don't hear the word Christ like we do, and we think maybe that was Jesus' last name. <laughs> when they hear Christ, they think, oh, I just, I'm a part of the people that crucified their Messiah, the Messiah they've been waiting on for a long time. So now he gets to 37, 
their heart is pierced, they ask the rightful question, brethren. Notice they say brethren, not because they're brothers in Christ yet, but because they're Jewish brethren. So the audience is Jewish. Brethren, what shall we do? And this is Peter's response in 38. Peter said to them, repent, which I believe is metanoia. I I think that's the word metanoia, which is change your mind. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, so where does the tension lie in verse 38? Well, I think in a few spots. (laughs) Just a few. Just a few. First, with the word repent. Uh, I mean, we can go back and see Jesus's words. Uh, He does say uh, in Luke chapter 24, I believe, the repent and for the forgiveness, you you will be saved, the repentance and forgiveness of sins. We also have Paul saying, just believe Mm -hmm. and your sins will be forgiven. Mm -hmm. So we do have some tension in the repentance piece, which I believe repentance and belief happen at the same time. I don't think they're necessarily totally separate things. I think we see that we see the conviction in the heart of these people. And then belief is believing in what Jesus has done for their sin, which would be the turning of your mind into following Jesus, which is the repentance, the turning and following. So we we establish— Faith and repentance is synonymous. They're not necessarily two different things. They're the same thing. Right. And so when he says repent, what he's saying is believe what I've just told you and turn away from your sin Mm -hmm. because of what— yeah. Because of the belief yeah. in what I just said. Because they're asking, like you said, the right question. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if what you say is true, mm-hmm. what what are we going to do? What yeah. shall we do? Okay, turn from your ways. Um, well, and, and it's even even more detailed than that. I would even say, first of all, us as Christians, have we fully, I mean, just let's just start with you and me. Have you and I fully turned away from our sin? No. Well, no, because I'm still like Sinner. still wrestling with <laughs> yeah. that. However, the repentance Jesus is talking about here, it obviously implies leave behind your lifestyle of sin. But in order to leave behind your lifestyle of sin, you have to realize that the real problem is within you, right? So I think the idea is repent of the fact that you can't save yourself. Repent of who you thought you were and change, that's the word, metanoia, change your mind, change your mind about yourself. You're not as righteous as you thought you do need a savior. So if you start with yourself internally, then of course the implication is later on you you work on the lifestyle stuff, right? Yeah. But internally, you need to see that you you cannot save yourself. It's a mindset change on who you are and a mindset change on who Christ is. When you see yourself rightly, you'll see Christ rightly. Well, we can't save ourselves because Jesus does that for us, but there is a response that we must have, right? Right. Because they, he, they do ask the question, what shall we do? And then Peter gives them something to do, right? Which means that they must do something, and that something that they must do is follow Jesus. Yeah. You know, the, the tension point here, like you mentioned a moment ago, is doctrine becomes challenged, mm-hmm. is what do we believe about salvation? If somebody were to say, Kyle, okay, what do I got to do to be saved? You know, your response would be, you need to believe in Jesus by faith. We are saved by faith, not by works, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are only saved by faith. However, this verse gives some type of indication that says, well, and be baptized as well, which baptism, I don't care how you cut it, that is a work. 
that is a religious activity. So the tension here is, what do we do with the clear doctrine in the New Testament? And by the way, the Old Testament, I think Abraham was saved by faith. The Israelites were saved by faith, not by law. The law taught them how to live, but you were saved by faith. So the tension here is if the, if the Bible clearly tells me that salvation is by faith alone, then what do I do with this verse where Peter tells them to get baptized? Whenever you have a conundrum like this, you always start with the doctrine that's super clear and then you work, you work backwards from there. The doctrine that's clear is salvation by faith. We've just got way too many verses that point to that. But then working backwards, how do we interpret this passage? I actually would like to propose something that contextually um, we need other parts of the Bible to interpret. Uh, I'm in a, a New Testament class right now on the book of Acts, and my professor pointed this out just like two weeks ago, that this verse on being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible because what Peter is telling them to do is he's saying, you as the current generation of Jewish men and women who have rebelled against your Messiah, you need to be baptized to disassociate yourself from the cursed generation that you live under. So if you will, why don't we just go to Matthew chapter 23, if you want to turn there really quick. And Kyle, why don't you read Matthew 23, 34 to 36, and then I'll do 37 to 39. All right. Turning there now, giving us a second. The sound of pages Pages is a beautiful thing. Yep. Matthew 23, 34 to 36. Go ahead and read it when you got it. Sure. It says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your own synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This generation, right? Jesus is speaking to the generation of Israelites that had carried on the tradition of persecuting the people that God was giving them for their own flourishing. So he calls them this generation. And then look what happens in 37 to 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you notice in 36, Jesus talks to the nation of Israel as this generation. Then verses 37 to 39, he's talking essentially uh, about how he wanted, he wanted to gather up Jerusalem underneath his wings, but they've rebelled against him. And now the, the outcome of that rebellion is going to be the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Jerusalem will be ransacked by Titus and and by Rome. So Jesus is saying that there is a generation of Israelites who are going to be dealing with judgment in the immediate future here on earth because of their rebellion against me, right? Now, keep that in mind and remember that baptism 
is all about disassociation. So going back to Acts chapter 2, looking at verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Remember, he's speaking to the Israelites who had rejected Jesus. That's exactly what, what they did to him. And then look what he says in verse 39. For the promise, the promise of salvation is for you, the Israelites, and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse what? Generation. Generation. So Jesus had brought a curse upon the generation of Israelites who reject him. If Jesus as many scholars think, died and resurrected and ascended in 30 AD. And if the temple fell in 70 AD, that means there is a 40-year gap between his ascension and between the temple falling. How long is a generation, scripturally speaking? A generation is 40 years. So Jesus pronounces a cursing on that generation. 40 years later, the temple is going to be destroyed. I think what G, what Peter is saying is he's speaking to Israelites specifically saying, Israelites, you're different than the Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles don't have a curse put on their generation, but you do. So if you want to disassociate from a generation, a perverse generation that has a curse placed upon them, then you need to be baptized to disassociate yourself from the cursed generation, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit, and then you'll walk and you'll become a part of the church along with the Gentiles. I think that's what the passage is saying. I think the information, the context lines up. I could be wrong, but I don't think Peter is telling them that you have to add baptism as a work in order to be saved. I think the context shows he's, he's talking to Israel. No, I think we can argue from Scripture that these Jews who had their hearts cut or pierced in that moment yep. were saved. Yeah. Because they asked, now, what do we do with this? <laughs> right? What do we do with this? Because something's worked on our hearts. Yep. I would say God has worked on their hearts, yep. has, has, and they are convicted of what they have done, not just to Jesus, but in their own lives. So then that Peter says, your response to what Jesus has done is to turn from your ways, which means to turn towards him right. and walk with Jesus. Nobody is asked to walk with Jesus before they're saved. That yep. doesn't even make sense. No, absolutely. Why would you follow a man if you don't believe what he's already done? Right. So that's what happened. We see this order of belief, the work on the heart, that yep. is that by faith they have believed in Jesus. Then they say, Peter, what shall we do? He says, repent, turn to him and walk for him and live for him. Mm -hmm. And then, as in an act of obedience, be baptized to show publicly that you follow Jesus. And you're not a part of that perverse, of that generation, perverse generation that is cursed and is awaiting judgment in 70 AD. Yep. Yeah. And so today, when we look at baptism in the church, what are we doing? We're pu publicly declaring in front of everybody, that I follow Jesus. This is my act of obedience. I'm saying I am a Christ follower. I am not a part, no longer, of of this world. Right. But I'm a part of the church. Yeah. And so it's the same. It's the same reason we do it today. Now back then, this was a this was a hot time, right? Oh man. <laughs> to be to be an Israelite, to be a Jew. So to to say I'm going to disassociate myself from the synagogues. Yes. And I'm going to follow Christ and be a part of the church. That was a big deal. It was. It's something that never been done before. And the pressure didn't only come from the from the Israelites. Mm -hmm. The pressure also came from Rome, right. because eventually Rome's going to say, 
I, what are these Christians doing? Yeah. Who is this Christ they're following? Yeah, you can't, I thought we got rid of him. <laughs> they can't be in the synagogues, and then they can't be open in the public because of the Roman Empire. So they're between a rock and a hard place. And at a certain point, it's like, well, there's no other choice. I'm following Jesus regardless of the consequences. If you think in the Middle East about individuals who come to faith in Christ and then they get baptized, oftentimes they're, they're martyred because of it. Because in the Middle East, when you disassociate, you disassociate from Islam and you disassociate from your former life and you give yourself to Christ. And what takes place is you may end up losing your physical life. Jesus says, though, if you lose your life, you'll gain it. So long story short, you know, here, here's some something that I want to say about this passage. In fairness, looking at this passage through the lens of a cursed generation that will undergo destruction in 70 AD. This is a new concept to me in this chapter specifically. I know all those details, but it's a new concept for me to think about as far as the Jewish people after Peter's sermon, the Jewish nation being the first audience after Peter preaches, which makes sense, right? The gospel's first to the Jew, then to the Greek. This is kind of a new concept for me about disassociating yourself from the cursed generation of Israelites who will undergo destruction in 70 AD. But I can't escape the fact that that's clearly biblical. So this is where it's like, look, it's still a fresh idea. I think it's also possible you can work with the wording here. Look what happens in verse 41. So then those who had received his word were what? Were baptized. Were baptized. So the reception of the word indicating belief took place before the baptism, right? Um, So I think there's ways around this logistically, but the Bible is extremely clear that salvation is not by works. It is not faith plus baptism. It's just it's just faith. Yeah, when we look at when we look at Jesus saying, "What does it mean to be saved?" He says, "Believe in me. Have faith in me, and your sins will be forgiven." Over not, and over and not over. Not believe in me, your sins will be forgiven if you're baptized. That's he, never said. He just never went there. No, right. that's not what he said. And then we look at Paul later right. on. Paul never says to be baptized. Yeah. As a part of salvation. He says it's faith alone and Christ alone. So, Well, if anything, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Yeah. Right? Because Christ didn't send me to baptize, but Christ sent me to preach the gospel. Right. Which is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) If baptism is necessary for salvation, could you see Paul in 1 Corinthians ever saying, well, Christ only sent me to preach but not not to fulfill the requirement of what was necessary for you to finish being saved. Paul would never say a thing like that. No. So that's the idea. First Corinthians chapter one, Paul addresses that. He says Christ didn't send him to baptize, although baptism is an act of obedience that you should take part in right after you're saved. If indeed, in fact, right after, I'm not arguing that it should not be an immediate act of faith. I actually think in our culture we take way too long to get baptized. Like we got to wait three years or something for it. We got to wait until my grandparents come out of town to come and visit, to witness it and all these things. And while those aren't bad things, I think we've kind of created a culture which says, uh, well, baptism is something that we can put off. But I do believe that the early Christians, this is one of the first things they did in being saved. So what I hear you saying, Dakota, is you're going to hook up a trailer to your vehicle with a tub or a jacuzzi. And we're just going to drive, drive around, around and start baptizing people. Yep. <laughs> Can I have your confession? Oh, good. Oh, good confession. Jump in I'm going to dunk you. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Not really. But I, I think maybe the moral of the story today is that you've got to be very careful 
not just to take a, a scripture at face value and then to assert your own cultural predispositions on top of the text without examining the rest of the scriptures. What is it we learned in, in Bible college and in seminary? Context, context, context. If you want the truth of a passage, pay attention to the context, the context, the context. And that's all we're doing here. We're saying contextually, looking in Matthew, looking in some other places, I think this is a disassociation, disassociation from a, a cursed generation of Israelites waiting for judgment. Yeah, we can never pull away from the foundation of biblical interpretation, right? Just because we become more educated or read more stuff, it doesn't mean we stop using the same tools we learned freshman year right. of Bible college. Isn't that amazing? The tools are still needed. Each and Those are tools we use every day. Right. And so we got to keep using them. Do not lose track of those tools. And, and I also want to say this, I can guarantee you I have misinterpreted passages in my life, even when using hermeneutical skills. Um, if, if you think as a pastor that you have always interpreted every passage correctly, you might, you know, be too prideful. The fact of the matter is, is that all of us are going to fall short somewhere. This is the stance, the position I'm taking. I think the New Testament's too clear on salvation only being by faith. Okay, so how do I work back to, backwards from that? How do I examine what this passage is saying in context? And that's what we're doing. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's hard to commit heresy if you're not trying to do it. You can do it, but it's, it's even harder when you're not attempting to bring a, a heretical position. Yeah, so the last thing, I want to look at verse 42. Uh, it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Who's the they? Oh, 41. 3,000 souls, right? Right, 3,000 yep. souls. Yep. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Mm-hmm. So I just want to point out what the church is doing. Yep. What, what is Four the, things. What is the church doing? Well, they're listening to the teaching yes. of God's word, right? What the apostles are teaching them about who Jesus is. And then they're in fellowship. They're hanging out, right? right? Encouraging one another, spending time building relationships, breaking bread, right? In a meal, mm-hmm. right? Hanging out and then in prayer. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a little bit of a model of what church should look like yeah. or things that should be taking place at That's a church. Right. If you come to Ottawa Bible Church, you're going to hear the teaching of God's word. Yep. You're going to be in fellowship with one another because yep. there's people here. If not during the midweek at your home groups. Right. And then you're also going to break bread every you're Sunday. You're going to have morning. a meal every Sunday. Every Sunday there's breakfast. In between services. And there's going to be prayer. Yep. So we just want you to know this is this is kind of a little bit of a model of what the church should look like, things that you should walk into a church and see. The biggest one, which is the first one, which is the teaching of God's Word. Right. I think if that's not happening, you're not at a church. Um, you're just at a place that likes to talk about nice things that make you feel good. You're at a community uh, center. Yeah, uh, or a club. Um, the church is in a club. Uh, the church is uh, a gathering of the saints to glorify the name of God, to be in fellowship, to be encouraged, to be sent out to share the gospel. So these are the things that build up the kingdom that will send us out to build relationships, to disciple, to teach so that we can go reach people. And we're going to continue in the book of Acts because we're going to continue to see people being reached. Yeah, I think there's just one final closing thought that I have about uh, this last verse that I think needs to be pointed out. Well, maybe two thoughts. Number one, it says they were continually devoting themselves, which shows an active persistence, which shows a commitment, which shows, hey, this is more than like a once a month, twice a month type of attendance. But 
they, it uses the word devotion. They continually devoted themselves to the teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that's number one. The, the, the high enthusiasm and devotion of the early church is remarkable. But something else that I kind of thought of here is, okay, in that one day, 3,000 souls were added. And depending on how you interpret that, men only or men with their families, you have the first megachurch, which means that a large growing church is not always a bad thing. I think if we're not careful, sometimes we look at our churches and we say, well, I don't want it to grow because growth means losing relationships. But that's not the case here. You've got 3,000 souls added. They're continually devoting themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. How do 3,000 people plus possibly their families do that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is you may not know everyone, but you're united because you're under the word of God. You're united because you're meeting. You're united because you're eating together and you're praying together. I think we have to be careful with not just assuming that a healthy church with healthy relationships has to be small. What if there's a lot of buzz and a lot of excitement and a lot of people coming for the right reasons and the church continues to grow larger and larger, right? You can gather 3,000 people together one day and you can give them a TED talk and that's going to be a mega church and that's going to be unhealthy. But if there are a growing amount of people coming for the right reasons, we, we dare not stand against that. I think the Bible shows us that you can have intimate fellowship in a house church like in Philippi or intimate fellowship, even if there's 3,000 people. I think there's mega churches and real small churches, even here in the book of Acts. And that's just something to point out. God's Holy Spirit will do anything regardless of the size of the people. Yeah, and we see 3,000 people come to know Jesus in a time of almost immediate persecution. Yeah. What an amazing thing. Absolutely. The faith of these people um, that, that God had given them, and just for them to gather together, to be breaking bread, to be praying together. Now, were they all in the same place? I don't, I don't know if they were all gathered together all in one place, 3,000 people, but they were probably in people's homes, meeting together, uh, breaking right. bread, living together continually, right? We, it's not this, you get saved, you go to church once on Easter or Christmas, right. and you're good. Right. That's not what the Bible says. Yep. We see that there's a continual devotion to God's Word and living it out for Him. And so that's what we need to do. Yeah. It's being obedient to Him. Um, other Sunday mornings, right? I'm tired. That's right. Right? I want to take a break. But guess what? Obedience to God's more important than my break. That's right. I'll find another place to get a break. Uh, but I'm not going to break on the Lord's day and I'm going to serve him and glorify him. And so we just need to continually devote ourselves to these things, not because it saves us, but because we've been saved. Yeah. Not because it saves us, but because it sanctifies us. Right. Yep. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Be Disciples podcast. Please share with your friends, your family, strangers. I don't really care who you share it with. I just want people to know all about Jesus. And so if you want them to know about Jesus as well, just share the podcast. Simple way to spread the gospel as we'll talk about that Jesus has died for our sins on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again. And that if we believe in him, we will be saved. Go and share it with people. Thank you so much for listening in. Have a great week.